Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Good morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally, and it is all because of my truly incredible guests, and I feel so immensely fortunate to spend time with people who are at the top of their game, and they are passionate about helping you, the audience, achieve your goals in both your personal and professional lives, and my guests show up here holding nothing back. They are here to share the secrets of their peak performance with us, and I know that you'll find their insights both inspiring and actionable. So sit back, take notes, relax, and get ready to take your life and your business to the next level. Today, I get to welcome to your partner in Success Radio, I mentioned that earlier, Summer Davies, who joins us to share, and I love this, empowering leadership leading with purpose for lasting impact. Now, Summer is a distinguished leadership expert, and she cultivates thriving professional environments with 15-plus years of experience. And her focus is empowering individuals, forging connections, and guiding emerging emerging leaders while equipping them with skills and a passion. That's such an important word, a passion for impactful leadership. Summer, good morning. Thank you for joining me on your Partner in Success Radio. It's good to have you here. Good morning, Denise. I'm so delighted to be here today. Well, we had tried this, just so our audience knows. We had tried this a week or so ago, and it didn't work. So here we are again, and it's working. Thank goodness. So before we get started, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background, and how did you get started doing what you're doing? Yeah, Um So I have a little bit of an unusual background, although the more I work in this space, the more I find that that is more common than you might think. I um, thought that my career was going to be in the horse industry. I have an undergraduate degree in equine reproduction. I thought I would be breeding horses and that was my future and life had different plans. I ended up Um, getting thrusted really early into a leadership position that I was really not well prepared for. And that experience was a little traumatic, but also really formative. And it gave me the opportunity to learn about leadership development and firsthand see how powerful it is to transform. And in this case, it was me going from a really unskilled um, kind of a hot mess leader to to being somebody who could actually bring together a team and, and be a skilled leader. And it, it kind of ignited a passion in in me for this profession. And I ended up spending the last 15, 16 years having the opportunity to work in all sorts of organizations globally, developing, studying, and working firsthand with leaders and getting a bit of an understanding about what does it take to be an effective leader? What does that mean? And what are the what are the common things everybody needs if they want to be an effective and engaging leader? Okay, Summer, you can't just say that and then drop it. How did <laughs> you get, how did this happen? I mean, you went from, you know, really wanting to to be working with horses. That is your passion. And you had a fairly difficult childhood, if I remember correctly. 
But then you got thrust, in your words, into this environment where you had to become a leadership expert or a leader. That doesn't happen, in my my opinion, in my experience, by happenstance. It kind of happens because that's where you need to be. So how did it how did it evolve for you? Yeah, so I did grow up in um, a somewhat um, unstable environment. My family struggled with housing insecurity, food insecurity. Um, and I had a love for horses from as early as I can remember, I wanted to be around them. And so when I would go to my parents and say, guys, I really, I want a pony when I was young and my parents were, um, back in, in this time, food stamps were actually stamps where they came in like a little book and they had a picture of chicken, picture of like piece of cheese or whatever. And they would be budgeting out our food stamps for the month to make sure that we could make it to the end of the month with food. And I'm saying, I want a pony, you know, I might as well have been saying, I want to go to the moon. Right. Right. It was just totally outside of reality for our family's circumstance. And, um, luckily I was able to find some opportunities to ride and, and work and, um, be around horses as I became a teenager. And then I found out that they had an equine program at Colorado state university, which is an amazing university. And I was able to get in and I thought, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. And when I graduated, I got a job. I got my dream job working at a breeding ranch in Oklahoma. And that transition to go from the passion side of an industry to the um, professional side of the industry was harder than I was prepared for. And um, I I found that I was coming home every day and I didn't want to ride my horse because I was just burnt out. And, uh, and so I knew I needed to make a change. So I went looking for a job. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I tried a couple different things, trying to stay in the industry. And at this time I was young as 23, 24 years old. So I did what every broke 23 year old does. I got a puppy. Great choice. Um, and I took him into a veterinary hospital and had a really surprising experience where I ended up talking to um, the person who was in charge of the area, you know, in charge of all the hospitals in the area. And I was sharing with him how I felt particularly about animals and how I feel like they're really part of family and, and all this. And he said to me, you know, I'm looking for somebody who has that type of outlook uh, to come work here. Are you looking for a job? Which is the last thing I expected. And I said, yes. Um, and he put me in charge of a veterinary hospital and I was, totally unprepared for that. I had no business leading people. Many of these people were much more educated than I was. And most of them were older than I was. Um, and I, I really didn't know what it took to bring together a team, even a team that would naturally come together because they all had a shared passion for the profession they were in. And it only took a few months for me to realize this is, this is not going well. Um, People didn't like coming to work. My turnover was really high. Uh, it wasn't It wasn't a fun place to work and we weren't being successful. We weren't being profitable. And I was pretty sure the problem was me. Um, okay. And so back at this time, I did what you do in the, in the early 2000s, which dates me a little bit. I went to a Barnes and Noble and I bought a book about leadership development, just looking for any solution that I could possibly find. And I read it, I brought the principles back to my hospital and I tried it out and it worked. 
And the more I did it, the more it worked. And I thought, this is so cool. I I really, I want to get into this. And so fortunately, yeah. the hospital I worked for actually was owned by a large multinational organization that had a career path that I was able to follow to get into the HR space and and really get serious about having a career in this in this space. And that gave me the privilege to be able to then create a profession I never even dreamed would be the case. So that's the nutshell version of how I ended up here. And you never know where a conversation is going to lead you. You just don't know. So have conversations, listen, you know, take take action when you need to. But you said something just now that grabbed my attention when you read the leadership book. And I've read a lot of leadership books. And in fact, I have hundreds of them in my entrepreneurial library mm-hmm. that were all gifted to me by my podcast guests. And I've read every single one of them. But you said something important that when you brought them back in and you started doing what you were supposed to be doing or what you thought you should be doing in the leadership landscape, it started working. Do you have any what what happened? I mean, do you have any kind of case studies when you say it started working and it sounds like it started working immediately? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a magic bullet. There is no such thing, um, but it did start to make a big difference. And I'll, I'll tell you that the thing that I did, um, and I didn't realize it was going to have this kind of impact, but the first thing that I did was I pulled my team together and I said, okay, let's let's be honest, things aren't going super well here. And I, I'm going to take responsibility for that. I think it's, I think it's largely me and I want to fix it. I'm really dedicated to trying to fix it. And I was really open about what I was doing. I shared the book with them. Um, I left the copy of the book that, cause I could at that time really only afford to buy one copy of the book. Um, I left it there at the hospital so that they, I said, you know, if you're interested in what I'm reading, you can pick it up and read it too. I'd love for you to hold me accountable to some of these principles. Um, and I think that was really the thing that made the big difference was having that level of candor. And uh, to your point, Denise, there's there's so many great leadership books out there. And, and I wouldn't dare to say one is better than the other. I think what's most important is that you apply it. And that you share with others what you're doing. So whatever principle or philosophy resonates for you, go after that, but be candid with those around you. And, and that really jumpstarts the change. Well, and you said too, that they didn't want to come to work. Well, they probably were looking at you here. You're, you know, bright and shiny and young and, you know, didn't have the credentials that they had. And they probably at every level resented the heck out of you, my guess. And you know, here you are trying to say, okay, we need to do this. We need to do this. And I go, I don't think so. I can hear it now. I really can. It really, it really can. And, and I could point to my experience there and then many, many others over the years that I've seen where you could say, okay, we see the moment when the leadership development was implemented. And then we look at some of the metrics, especially HR people get hyped up about things like turnover or intent to stay. Um, things like profitability, productivity, innovation, and you start to see all those metrics move in the right direction from the moment that that leadership development goes into place. And that was certainly true in my experience, but the one that will always stand out in my memory and, and I'll never, ever forget this was the moment that I realized, okay, this is broken and I've got to do something. I was walking to lunch and I noticed one of my young doctors one of my young veterinarians was sitting in her car and she was crying. After, after lunch, I pulled her aside and said, what's going on? You know what? You're crying in your car. 
because I was a bad manager, but hopefully not an unsympathetic, unsympathetic person. Um, and she's, she shared with me, she said, you know, I've, I've dedicated my life to this. Going to vet school is no small thing. Um, and I thought I would love it. And I don't love coming to work every day. I don't love being a veterinarian. And to me, that was like, okay, that's, that's the watershed moment. And so if I case study that out about six months later, she was no longer crying in her car at lunch. And so all the metrics aside, that type of experience was, was what was powerful for me and a, and a signal that it had worked. What changed for her? You know, it was that connection to, to purpose. She had gone to vet school because she had this deep desire. It's, it's a big thing to become a doctor and to be able to then say, okay, I'm coming into an environment where I can do what I do best every day. And all of the other chaos of, of running a business and that sort of thing can kind of fade away. And I can focus on doing what I love to do and I can show up every day and do what I do best. Cause I've got people around me that I can count on. I've got a manager who I trust and who I know will be there to support me. And so then I can just go in and work with the pets and the, and the patients that I care so much about and focus on that. So being able to create an environment around her that allowed her to do that was the change that, that made her be able to connect back to that passion and feel like this is what I was put on this earth to do. And I get to do it every day. Listen, I love my vets. I mean, they get fed better than I do. <laughs> Although I do eat a lot of shrimp. I live on the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, we eat a lot of fresh foods, but yeah, my chewies bill every month. I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> in fact, I just got a note. This there. It's like, okay, check the ear auto. It's like, oh, no, no, no. But listen, I love my vet. And this bugs me. And this is just a personal side. People say, oh, I just can't afford to take my pet to the vet. Then you don't deserve a, a pet. If you have not, and that's my personal attitude about it, it's like having children or taking care of your elderly parents or taking care of yourself. You have to make that time, that money, the savings accounts, whatever it's going to take to take care of them. And I will find a way to afford my vet visits. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's the reality is that sometimes there are tough situations and, yeah. and those types of situations were always some of the hardest for my veterinarians, but helping them connect to, okay, how do we help this family through this so that the pet can continue to be a part of their life? That was those moments that were so engaging and passionate. So um, I, I totally agree with you and and have had the opportunity to to work with a lot of families who just feel that way about their their pets, which is so much fun. Well, you know, I have feline office assistants. Mm. I have a Facebook group called feline office assistants. And my, well, I have two very large gingers. They're both 20 pounds a piece. And one of them, and he's a hashtag on Facebook, hashtag Hamilton is an ass. He gets Christmas cards. People love him, but he considers this to be, and he's listening very intently because he's, oh, they're talking about veterinarians. I don't think I like this. But he calls this in my head because I can see his thought bubbles, I think. But he calls, as far as he's concerned, this is a podcast, P-A-W-D cast. And he is absolutely going to be part of it. In fact, I'm not, I'm kind of waiting for him to, to kind of chime in. But pets are, they really are for so many of his family. I mean, they really are family. Now, horses, I don't know anything about. I love to look at them. I think they're stunning 
but I wouldn't get near one. They scare me to death. I'm like, oh, that's tall. I'm not going near that. But I think they're magnificent animals. Really do. But most animals are. They really are. And those people who work with animals dedicate their lives to to being veterinarians or vet techs or the front end receptionists or the horse trainers or, or any of those folks. That's passionate work. Um, and And it's really, really important that we find ways to create working environments for these people so that they can do what they love and not have to worry about all the other stuff. Um, and feel like they're getting that sense of purpose. Cause that's where you see some really serious disconnect in the workplace. Uh, unfortunately, veterinarians are one of the professions with the highest rates of suicide because you see this connect. Of I didn't know that that's horrible. It really is. It's, it's a, it's a serious problem in the industry. There's some really great people doing a lot of work in the industry to try to help with this. Um, but in my opinion, it's often because you have people who are deeply committed and deeply passionate and find it hard to do what they do best every day. And so in, in the, in the line of work that I spend most of my time in, it's how do we get those people, um, a manager can help them do that, help make that working environment engaging, passionate and fulfilling so that we can start to see some improvements in those, in those really important areas. And we're right back to leadership. Because if you have poor leadership, and we all see it, we either are it, we're <laughs> in it, we've gotten away from it, and we've learned better as you have done. But leadership, whether it's in the home or whether it's, you know, in your business or you're watching somebody else in their business going, what the heck are they thinking? I do that a lot. It's like, really? What do you think? Why are you yelling at your employee on the floor? That's, don't do that. But Leadership is so, so important. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, Summer, is what are some of the reasons that leaders struggle to define their purpose as a leader? And do you have any strategies that can aid them? I do. I do. So as I mentioned, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of leaders, and I've actually had the the privilege of getting to study a lot of leaders and do some in-depth analysis around what is it that causes exactly that problem that you just described, because it is so common. And I think most folks can reflect back to their own experience with leaders that they've worked for or their own experience as a leader and say, yeah, that that disconnect, that early struggle is a problem, but what what's causing it? I find that there is a moment that most most people and most organizations miss. When a leader goes from being an individual contributor so they're, you know, just on their own. And then they're promoted to being a leader of others. This is a really critical moment. And there needs to be a mindset shift where you acknowledge, I am no longer a doer. So if I'm an accountant and I'm the best accountant in the whole wide world, and then they promote me to be, you know, maybe leading a team of accountants, that shift to say, my job is no longer to be the very best accountant. My job is to bring out the best in my team so that collectively they can do more, be better than I can be individually. And that's a pretty dramatic mindset shift. Some people make it naturally, but most people, it takes them a little while to get there if they don't have that early help that they really need in the first days of moving into that first-time leadership position. So they need that mindset shift to be able to then understand, okay, the purpose of what I do every day is different now than it was when I was an individual contributor. Additionally, 
the skills that I'm going to need are going to be a little bit different. And so there's a set of foundational skills every manager really needs to have, but many don't get trained on. Just simple things like how do I prioritize and delegate work? How do I provide effective feedback? How do I look at an individual and together identify what type of support do they need? Do they need direction? Do they need coaching, mentoring, and then be able to provide those things distinctly and appropriately? These are these are foundational skills, but on average, a frontline leader is waiting 17 years to receive formal development. This this is too long. 17 months is too long. Um, and so we have this shift, and then you end up with folks who haven't made the mindset shift, they haven't developed the fundamental fundamental skills. And so they end up struggling and they end up feeling disconnected from a purpose because they, they haven't taken the time to be really intentional about their purpose. And this can happen even if as a solopreneur, you don't necessarily need to be part of a, a corporate team or a company team. Listen, in my, co- in my company, your office on the web.com, I was the bottleneck. No mm. question about it. I mean, I got in my own way on a regular basis. I kept bruising myself. It's like, what the heck is going on? But I didn't know by building my own business because nobody taught me how to do it. I had to do it. And I did not know that by nitpicking, and and I'm going to say I nitpicked my team. I was like, okay, I need you to do it this way. Do it my way. My, my way is the only way. Turns out it wasn't. And <laughs> I finally realized that they didn't like me very much and I didn't blame them. You know, I was always saying, okay, do this, do this, do this. And I was polite, but I wasn't overly friendly. They're, they're my team. They work for me or they work with me rather. And I just had this really, I realize it now kind of icky attitude. It was an ugly attitude. I just wanted to get things done. I'm an A type personality, get it done, move on, get it done, move on. And I had to move away from that a little bit. But once I realized that I was the bottleneck, And the reason people would not kind of jump in to help me when I needed help was because I was bossing them around. This is, this is so spot on, especially for solopreneurs, because if you are the one, you're the one, right? You're running your own business. So you're the talent, but you're also the marketing department and the accounting department and, and the everything department, right? And so solopreneurs, who are successful often get there because they're super good at doing it their way and they will push as hard as they need to, to get there, which is, which is how they end up being successful. But that transition, once you say, okay, I'm going to bring in, even if it's just some gig workers to help support my business, being able to then say, okay, I've got to flex and act like a leader instead of the everything department. That's a, that's a transition. And it's a critical one for folks who are trying to scale their business. It is. And once I finally realized that, and you know, nobody said anything to me, but you just get a feeling, you know, through text and messages, like they're not happy with me. You know, there's nothing overt, but you get it. You know, you, you can feel it the back of your neck, like, Oh, what's going on here. So I finally realized that, you know, I have people that are still on my team 10, 15 years later, they're still with me, but I finally got smart enough to hire people who are better than I am. Mm-hmm. I build websites. I do a lot of social media marketing. You know, I'm very techie. I'm known as a nerd in stilettos, but I don't keep up on every single update in my industries. I can't. 
who can't we just can't so i now if i need something for wordpress it's this particular section in wordpress or whatever it's going to be i hire the best person for that because that's all they do and they don't work for me they're part of my team they're contractors they work for me when i need them they work for their own companies they work for a lot of people and they're constantly upskilling themselves constantly so once I realized that I was the holdup, I was really ticking people off. Not, and it wasn't intentional. And I it hurt my feelings to realize I was that. I was. I wasn't mean, but I was like, "Get it done, get it done, get it done. Come on, let's get going." You can't treat people like that. Listen, I don't even my nav system is not the boss of me. I argue with her. So why was I arguing with my team all the time? So finally, I got all of them onto, you know, one call. And I said, tell me how I can help you want to stay with me and work with me. And what are your skills that, you know, you know that you know better about something that I do. Share that with me. And the dam broke open. Mm. I mean, I took notes. I think I cried. In fact, I know I cried, but I was so thankful. And most of them, like I say, are still with me. But I had to get out of my own way. And often that's that's the hardest thing to do. But, you know, in your story and in, in the one that I shared and in so many stories, it does take that moment to say, you know, a little Taylor Swift, it's me. I'm the problem. Right. And, and I'm going to do something about it. Well, and once I figured that out, I went, huh. And now out of the blue, you know, a lot of us are all talking about artificial intelligence right now. You can't avoid it. You just cannot. And my team, I'll get messages going, hey, Miss Denise, have you seen this? No. What's all that? And off we go. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly educating themselves. They're educating me. It's It's amazing. So I'm not sitting around with my notepad going, did you do this? They probably didn't, but they will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, that's the moment where you're able to start getting results that you couldn't even previously imagine for your right. organization because you've, you've invited that innovation and that creativity and you're having folks crack open ideas that you could never do on your own. And, and that's where you start to see um, whether they're small businesses or, or the biggest organizations in the world have those types of changes to their business to be able to go even further because they've unlocked the potential of their people. And leaders who've connected to their passion and then also been candid and open about their own development and skill set, those are the ones who create results that you could never have imagined before. And we all look at their businesses and say, oh, they're doing something special there. And and you can see it when it happens. You can. And you can put the Tums jar away. I did. <laughs> I used to constantly. <laughs> I had one sitting on my desk. I was like, oh, geez. But once I realized that, you know, I was the bottleneck and I use that term a lot, everything just changed and it changed almost instantly within days. And I've never looked back, but we were, you know, we're talking about leadership approaches and then we're talking a bit about micromanagement because that's what I was doing. And that's a bad thing. Listen, in my years of doing what I do, I've had two clients, two that I fired almost immediately because they were going to micromanage me. In fact, mm-hmm. recently, to be honest, but 
I thought, man, I've been down this road. I'm not going down that road again. And I started kind of reflecting on when I finally got out of my own way. But I think what people forget, and tell me what you think about this, is that, you know, HR is looking at metrics. You know, companies are looking at, you know, what are we doing? How's everything doing? I think they forget or don't genuinely understand that we're all humans. And you can't boss us around and you can't hurt our feelings or piss us off on a regular basis. Well, and what I find, so micromanagement is my favorite dirty word. Uh, and I used to be it. So, And it, it is so common. And the interesting thing that I think is really important when we start to see some of that micromanagement behavior, either in ourselves or in leaders that are around us, most of the time, in fact, almost all of the time, the people who are micromanaging are not doing it on purpose. I I know no managers who wake up in the morning and say, I really hope that I get to micromanage somebody today. I can't wait to get all up in their business and tell them what to do and you know, just destroy the trust in our relationship. And I'm going to maybe try to look for a chance to belittle them. Like nobody does that unless you're genuinely a sociopath, which is uncommon. Most people who are micromanaging are doing it unintentionally. They just haven't put in the work to be able to understand how do I need to change my behavior so that instead of just driving somebody blindly forward and having them just be like robotic arms and legs doing everything my way, how do I unlock potential in this person so that they can do it their way? They haven't had that shift. And so Oftentimes when I see micromanagers, they are actually having an excess of good intention. They're saying, gosh, I I really want to help this person. So I'm going to tell them how to do it. Or I want to make sure this person doesn't feel alone. So I'm going to be all, you know, I'm going to be all in the details so that I can help them without realizing "Mm, that may actually be causing damage when my intention is the opposite. And it doesn't feel good when you're at the end of it. On the other side of that, when somebody is micromanaging the bejeebers out of you, it, they're going to run. They are going to run. Fast and hard. And as soon as they're through with you, they are never going to speak to you again because you just are not their kind of people. You know, it is the most effective way to damage trust, to just really, really show someone I don't trust you. Um, and so once... Once trust is gone, it's very hard to have a relationship going forward. It really is. And I'm so glad we talked about this because, listen, like say years ago, many years ago, thank goodness, I was that person. But once I thought, okay, what's going on here? You know, why why is my team just kind of going, okay. But they mm-hmm. were going, Denise, what about this? They still do it. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting to see what these people are doing because they are very, very good at their particular skill set or skill sets. And I'm always waiting to see what they're coming up with. It's like, Ooh, that's a good idea. Well, we can't use that one just yet, but don't put it away. Hang on to it. So you just never know. But I wanted to, I mean, what steps, let's assume that we've got that person in our life or had, in my case, that person in our life that is probably not going to be able to figure out what they're doing. And I'll be honest with you, this one person I think has some mental issues. So how do you help? Do you just say, I got to go, I'm out of here, or can you help? 
Um, you know, outside of being a therapist or a mental health professional, yes, you can absolutely help. Um, and if that person, so if you're working for somebody and you're experiencing kind of micromanagement behavior from that person and, and you want to be able to say, Hey, I like working here. I don't think this is your intention. That That's just an opportunity to give them some feedback and, and it's going to take some vulnerability and some big courage to be able to say, Hey, this is how I'm experiencing you. I think your intention is different than this, but the impact that these behaviors are having on me is this. And that's just ability to give clear and, and handed feedback to somebody in an empathetic way to help them begin to understand. Now, I actually have a micromanagement assessment on my website that I offer for free. So if you think, oh, I'm... I'm concerned that maybe I'm micromanaging and not intending. That can be a good way to just take a look at your behaviors as an individual and get some reflection if you think it might be you. Um, but if it's somebody else, the ability just to give some feedback and help them understand where the disconnect between their impact and their intention is, is really the most powerful way. And then for for these managers, so if you're if you're looking after a group of managers, or you want to try to improve for yourself, it's about building in those fundamental skills because micromanagement is that excess of good intention matched with an inability to effectively prioritize and delegate and often give feedback. If you can build those just simple fundamental skills, you'll see a world of a difference in the impact you're having on others. That's brilliant advice. Where can people find the assessment? You can head over to my website. I'll make sure you've got a link so you can put it in the uh, in the information for the podcast and it's, it's on there and, and really easy to download and, and just take a look and see, you know, am I maybe over managing my people, maybe under managing my people and, and they need more of me. That's a, that's a possibility as well. Oh, let's talk about that. Yeah. So I, I refer to this as abdicating leadership, which is where somebody says, I'm so concerned about being a micromanager, or I have so much trust in my people that I'm actually not giving them enough direction. And it comes from the exact same place. It comes from a lack of skill in the ability to prioritize and delegate work matched with an excess of good intention. And oftentimes that abdication comes from, I want to stay out of their way. I think they're so brilliant. I'm going to stay out of their way, but you go too far out of their way. And they really need more of you to help guide them on specific tasks. And so I do see that happen on occasion with really well-intended leaders. Well, that does make sense. And I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Why, but I just hadn't thought of it. But it really, when you stop and kind of break that down into the sentence components that you just shared, it's like, oh, okay. Because yeah. if you're staying out of their way, they kind of figure, I guess, that you're not really watching, you're not really helping, you're not really there for them. Yeah. And so, you know, in order to be able to find that sweet spot, right, because I'm talking about a delicate balance between too much and too little, and you don't want to three little bears it and end up um, in trouble, but to be able to say, all right, how do I partner with individuals to understand where they feel like they are and what they need from me on each task? Because this also goes to the level of the task, which is really classic situational leadership type stuff, Right. Being able to say, let's say, you know, Denise, if you happen to work on my team, 
there might be a handful of things that you are just an absolute rock star on. And, and all you need from me is a, is a check-in occasionally, make sure we're clear on what success looks like and you're off and running. But then you may have other things that are new or changing. And as you mentioned, you know, as AI comes into the space, things that you used to do, and now we have to do it totally different and, and the task looks different. And now you need a lot more direction and support as you're learning to do that newer task. So same person, different needs based on the task. And that's about building that trusting relationship so that they can candidly share with you, this is the task. This is what I need. Normally I'm a rock star. Here I need some more direction or, Hey, you know what? Actually, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I don't need quite so much direction. And then we are able to build a plan for the type of support that I will offer depending on your needs. And that's, you know, that's the other disconnect that we find a lot of leaders say, well, I'm a coaching style leader that I coach all the time. That's what I do. And so no matter what my people need, I just give them the same thing all the time, which once you say it out loud, you can realize, well, that's not a very, it's not a very sound plan. Um, I need to be able to flex that, but, but that's a skill and it requires some development over time to be able to do that effectively for your folks and to feel comfortable flexing your style on a regular basis and not make it feel too scattered. Well, Summer, I wanted to ask you why adopting a coaching approach, and we're not talking about coaching like life coaching and business coaching. We're talking about, you know, you getting in front of your people and just coaching them. You can do this. You can do this. I guess, you know, just that never works with me, by the way. I'm like, no, I can't, or I don't want to. I immediately go into, you can't tell me what to do, but why I'm kind of difficult to get around with around sometimes, but why, and and there are people who do that. They're just going to coach you all the time. How is that risky? I think you touched on it just a little bit, but let's go deeper. Yeah, this is a really common one because coaching is culturally, certainly in the United States, perceived as a really good leadership style and it can be, but coaching is built on the fundamental belief that the answer is inside the person and all you're trying to do is unlock it. So gotcha. if we go back to, you know, classic John Whitmore, who's kind of the, the father of the great books on coaching, right? Um, the the philosophy is that the answer's in there and you're just trying to encourage it out. Now, that's fantastic if the answer is actually in there. But if it's not, that can feel really horrible to the individual if they actually don't know the answer. If they're brand new to the task, they don't have the capability or the knowledge you can coach them and say, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. But if they actually can't, that then goes from being a really encouraging and supportive type of approach to something that feels really crummy. Um, and again, can break down trust. So as a leader, it's about, can you, can you be aware of the moments when coaching is going to be helpful and then be cautious in the moments when coaching is maybe not going to be so helpful because they don't actually have the answer to encourage out. And then you need to shift to more of a directive approach or a mentoring type of approach where we're giving information and encouraging somebody to grow and learn with that information or, or whatever the case might be. And these days, everything is so techie. Look, I'm a techie nerd. I admit it. I dream in HTML. Seriously. <laughs> I do. I build websites while I'm cooking. It's just the way my brain works. But the thing is, a lot of people, let's just use Canva as a, for instance, Canva is a heck of a platform. I love it. I use it all the time. Something new is coming out there all the time. So for you to say, just as a, for instance, okay, I need you to go into Canva and I need you to do this and I need you to add audio to it. 
okay, now what? You don't know how. You haven't been taught how. You're not given any direction on where to find this information. So you can spend many, many hours trying to figure something out that could have been given to you on a spreadsheet, if if nothing else. It's such a perfect example, right? And I'm, I'm a huge Canva lover, use it all the time. And I had to learn it not that long ago. A couple of years ago, I started using it. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so if, if somebody had been sitting next to me saying, you can do it, you can do it, that would not have felt great. And, and when I teach this concept, I tell a, a story and I'd love to share it with you. Um, so I, I, I'm a Colorado native, grew up in Colorado. I skied as a child. And then as an adult, I got the crazy idea. I was going to learn how to snowboard, which many, if you don't do those sports, you may not understand that the difference between skiing and snowboarding is actually pretty tremendous physically really different, different, but you know, I got the idea in my thirties, I was going to learn how to snowboard. And so I showed up for lessons on the first day and there was a young man who was there and this kid had to be, I don't know, 19 or 20 classic snowboarder kid. And I'm thinking, Oh, here we go. And it turns out he's one of the best leaders I've ever seen in my entire life. Cause what he was able to do is he's able to see this lady doesn't know how to buckle her boots. She doesn't know how to even begin to stand up. So at the beginning of this lesson, what I need to do is, is give her very clear direction. Here's how you snap your boots. Here's where you need to put your weight and your knees and your hips and your hands in order to be able to stand up. Now, if he had sat there and said, you can do it. I would have said there, no, I can't. I don't know how. It's like, watch me fall down. All day long, I actually can't. I don't have the knowledge. Now, as the day progressed, he started to slowly back off that really specific direction. You know, as I was able to stand up a couple of times and then get on the lift and and be able to go a couple of feet without falling, still getting a bit of direction because I still need some of that specifics. Lean here, use this edge, put your head there, that type of thing. But now he was able to start building in some of that motivation and saying, okay, you did it once, try to repeat that. And then by the end of the day, once I was able to stand up on my own and start going a little ways, that's when he started, you know, backing off that really specific direction and giving me that coaching type of style so that when I fell, he would say, you can do it. Now you fell there. Do you know why? And now I've had an entire day of lesson and I could actually answer that question. And that's That's brilliant. type of flexing that we need to see from our leaders to be able to match the needs of their, of their employees. But listening to you and I am the leader in my business, obviously I'm the face of my business. Everything you just said to me, I need to take to heart for me. I need to, you know, watch my steps. What am I doing? Where did I fall? Look, mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, we fail all day long. We do. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to fail. Yeah, you are. You're going to do it between now and noon. Just get ready for it. It may be bad. It may be okay, but you're going to fall. Boom. That's all there is to it. And listening to you, I'm thinking so much of what you're saying, I need to point back to me and watch me. Where am I falling down? Why am I falling down? Why do I keep making the same silly mistakes? Okay, I know better. And something else you just said was so important. You didn't have the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Well, if you watch yourself, you'll gain that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And to be aware and say, I really don't know the answer here. So I need to go 
find it. And we live in an age where you don't have to go to a Barnes and Noble to find the answer, right? We've got every bit of information on the planet at our fingertips most of the time. So we have an ability to go find an answer when you genuinely don't know it. And in ways that we've never been able to do before, teach ourselves, but a great leader is going to be able to come in and say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be there with you and help you figure out what's going to work for you. And and how do we fill in those gaps when there are those um, in your knowledge? Back to snowboarding. How good are you now? I'm horrible. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not good. Um, I oh. love, I absolutely love it. I, we have a lot of fun. We go, we go quite a bit. But, you know, I'm in my 40s now, and so I don't have a lot of interest in going super fast or doing anything super crazy. Um, So I'm very happy to be a mediocre snowboarder who enjoys it very, very much. Um, And my kids are learning now, and they are instantly better than I am because they're afraid of nothing. And, uh, And we have a lot of fun with it. So we spend a good bit of time on the mountain. Good for you. When I was reading your bio, you said that you were just kind of middling and on board and went, okay, I've have to know the story. But I love the story about how he taught you that he was aware enough to, you know, say, okay, snap the boots, you know, start with, start with the first set. There's a, a YouTube video, Colonel, I can't remember, Admiral, I never can remember his name, where he says, make the bed. Mm-hmm. The very famous video. And, you know, he's basically starting with, you begin your day, you make the bed. And it just goes from there, and it's step after step after step, and it does make perfect sense. Once you have these kind of habits, then you can move on to the next thing, assuming that they're not bad habits. You can move on to the next thing and continue to learn and to grow and to stack those good habits and those good mindsets. It's absolutely right. And I think you just said something there that was so important um, about newer leaders. So what happens sometimes if in absence of really strong leadership development in the first couple of years of a leader's journey, um, what can end up happening is they don't get that specific direction and they're going to build habits no matter what you do, good habits or bad habits. And so if you have a leader who's moving into leadership in the early days and they don't get the opportunity to be given those good habits, then they can start to create some of those not so great habits. And it's much harder to then go back and say, okay, we've got to start again because you've fallen into a micromanagement or an abdication type of style, or you don't know how to give feedback. And, And when you do give feedback, it's actually not helping that much those types of things. So I think it's those early days that I get really fired up about because that's where we build those habits. And you're talking a lot about, you know, feedback. It's important. It's not something that we should be afraid of or nervous about. Yes. You don't want to stomp up to your manager and say, Hey, I got a bone to pick with you. That's never going to go well. Don't do it. But if you can sit down and like, as you explained earlier, this is, you know, this is what's happening. This is how I feel. What can we do to maybe mitigate some of this? It's helpful. And you can dread it going in, but I, it's like any other conversation. Do you ever do this summer? You're like, oh, I've got to have this conversation. I need to fire this client or I need to do this out of the other. And you have these entire sets of conversations in your head, none of which took place in real life. 
because by the time you get on that phone or you're sitting in front of this person, it's completely different. And none of the things that you were so scared of or mad about just never even popped up. You know, this, this happens so often and I know all of us do it, whether we admit it or not. And we end up having that same conversation over and over again in our head. And the, the danger there, and this is where I get a little uh, brain science nerdy, is when your brain thinks you're having that conversation, it doesn't know the difference between you just thinking you're having the conversation and you actually having the conversation. And so you start to develop a bit of a neuro pathway around how that conversation went, even though it didn't actually happen. And you can start to build some resentment or some anger or some of those emotions around a conversation that never existed. And you keep having it. It keeps swirling in your head, kind of the way that when a song is stuck in your head, swirls in your head. And so one of the most powerful pieces of advice that I've ever heard is the reason a song gets stuck in your head is because you don't know how it ends. So what you have to do is go listen to the song and listen to the ending of the song. And that will get the song out of your head, which has been very useful uh, when my children were in the baby shark phase. Um, but when you have that happening with a conversation, the sooner you can actually get into the real conversation, the better off you're going to be the long in the long term because you're not having it continue to go around in your head. You're able to get to completion of that conversation and you're not building emotions around something that doesn't exist. Exactly. And we all do it. I catch myself doing it, even though I know, and I'm not sure if it was Mary Kay who said this or Dolly Parton, don't know. But when you indulge in stinking thinking, it's, mm. don't do it. It's a mess. It really is. But these conversations never go the way you thought they were going to go. It's kind of like, what is that? You know, you'll, you'll be in a minor conversation or an altercation with somebody and 10 minutes later, you say, oh, I wish I thought to say this. It's over. Stop mm-hmm. it. It's over. Mm-hmm. Move on. You've got to, you've got to find the way to be able to let those things go and move forward um, with what's happened. Exactly. Listen, we're running out of time. So, um, and this has been a fantastic conversation. Can you tell me about any upcoming projects or initiatives that you're working on right now? Yeah. So right now my business is largely focused on supporting new and frontline managers. And I'm continuing to expand the focus in that area because there's such an amazing need for folks who are either solopreneurs, work in small businesses, or work in an organization that's growing, but doesn't yet have an option for frontline leaders, new leaders to be able to build all of these skills that we've been talking about for the last hour or so. Um, and so I'm continuing to focus on on doing that and offering really sustainable solutions and accessible solutions uh, for organizations who say, gosh, I really, I see the value in, in this population. I want to support them. And um, and I need, a, I need a way to do that. So that's been uh, the focus for me. And, and I'm really excited. It looks like that's going to continue to be an even bigger focus over the next 12 months or so. So that's the, that's the horizon. Good for you. So are you talking about, we, you know, we're always hearing about, oh, it's hard to work with millennials. Oh, it's hard to work with Gen Xers. Oh, I don't want to work with so-and-so and -and -and so-and-so. I don't think we have any options here. We need to work with, I mean, we're all in the workforce, generation after generation. We're in the workforce. 
Are you finding any particular areas that people say, I, I'm just not going to work with millennials and I'm just picking on millennials because they pop into my head, but I, I hear it. I see it though. I don't want to work with them. They're, they're not, they're lazy. No, they're not. Mm. Well, so millennials now are pretty securely a pretty big chunk of the workforce. They are. Now we're starting to see the Gen Zers come into the workforce and they are a totally different animal. And the really, really important population that I'm seeing a lot of folks try to figure out how to work with are the a little bit older Gen Zers, the ones who are already in the workforce. They were probably in the workforce or just getting into it at the start of the pandemic. And many of them are moving into leadership roles now or did it in the last year or so in the middle of us having this unbelievable shift in the way and places that we work. And so you have folks who have had a very unique entry and introduction to work and the way that we collaborate and build teams that is totally unique to anything else that any other generation has had. And that is happening simultaneously with boomers retiring at an unprecedented rate. And so you have this 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 knowledge source that's stepping out of the workforce. And then you have an entirely new set of expectations that are stepping in. And that is creating some really interesting dynamics. I'm super excited about it because I think the future looks really cool with this new generation coming in and pushing us to think more about purpose, connection, values, and flexibility in a way that we've never done before. And that level of change is hard. So I'm seeing a lot of conversations in that space. I am too. And like you, I'm fascinated to watch it. It's like, listen, we've always had to work with other generations. You know, when I was a kid, <laughs> this is how arrogant we are as kids. I remember being at a birthday party and the birthday girl was turning 26. And I remember looking at her and going, man, she looks good for her age. How arrogant are we at that age? <laughs> and if she was only 26. I think I might've been 18, but she was old to me. And then you come across, you know, 40 year olds. Oh, they're all, then you come across 80 year olds. Like, Oh, I want to learn from them. I say, just take each person as they are and learn and get fascinated with how they operate. Yep. Yeah. Doesn't matter what generation they're coming from. And they're going to bring such powerful insights to you if, if you're able to do that. So I, I really encourage organizations to get curious about these and what they're bringing. Yeah, get curious. Listen, um, oh, I wanted to ask you one more question too. What are some of the most important skills that you've developed throughout your career? Because, and I've been listening to you and you've got a ton of them, but what do you think are the most important skills? Well, we've talked a lot about feedback. I'd say that's the number one. And it, it really doesn't matter what seat you sit in, if you're a leader, if you're not, if you run in your own business or you're running your own home, whatever it is that you do, the ability to give feedback to the people around you to do it empathetically and effectively, uh, to me, always hits the number one spot. Um, And to start feeling comfortable giving feedback and seeing it as an act of service, an act of love to the people that you're giving it to. That to me is the, that's the number one. And then the other one we just talked about as well, which is curiosity. The more I find that I get curious about people, systems, cultures, organizations, any of those, the more fun I get to have in whatever we're doing, because there's just so much out there. 
and um, and coming in with genuine curiosity seems to be a, a really strong place to start. You're speaking my language. Summer, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience before I let you go? And where can people find you? Where can they connect directly with you? Yeah, there's a couple places. So my website, I'll make sure you guys have the link for that. So you can pop over there and get that micromanager assessment. I often put other things up there that I think will be useful to people in in your listeners' seats. So those resources are up there. That's a great place to find me. I'm also on LinkedIn and I share some thoughts and insights on a regular basis and a newsletter on, on LinkedIn. So if this is a, a topic that is interesting to you, can definitely find me on LinkedIn. And then for folks who are thinking, gosh, I really wish I could help my leaders develop these skills. And, uh, and I want to understand what that might look like. Absolutely reach out. I'm always happy to have a conversation about how we might be able to work together to offer some, some really powerful solutions to your leaders, no matter what size business you are. And especially if you've got frontline leaders, I love those folks. And I love to have the opportunity to work with them. Send us to your website. It's leader-shop.com. Got it. I looked at your, your assessment the other day and I thought, I need to take that. <laughs> and it is on my list of things to do because being a micromanager, it's a personality issue. <laughs> it really is. And even though we, you know, we like to think that we can really overcome some of our personality issues, we can but they can also crawl back in. So I need to make sure I'm not still in that space. Anyway, it has been wonderful chatting with you. And before we wrap up today's episode, if you have enjoyed today's conversation with Summer and found our insights helpful, please leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. Your feedback does help me improve and reach more people on their own success journeys. Excuse me. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, and share your part in Success Radio with your friends and your colleagues. And thank you for tuning in, and I will see you on the next one. Summer, again, thank you so much. It was a delightful conversation. Likewise, Denise. Thanks for having me. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 